0: The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water. By Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services, and by Intera, Innovation and Stewardship for a Sustainable Tomorrow. This is Session 195.
1: Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment,
0: reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. Hope your summer is going terrific. We've got a great show coming up. This is my exit interview with Jeff Keitlinger, the now former general manager of Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. And he provides, as always, a great interview. He's sharp and poignant, and he has terrific insights into water leadership issues, how the water sector has changed over the years, and providing some public words of advice to his successor. Uh, So it's just a top-notch interview by Jeff. You're really going to enjoy this. But before we get to that exit interview with Jeff, we'll have a Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale. And as always, we begin with a hearty thank you to our sponsors. Those sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for the 2021 season are Xylem, Black & Veatch, the American Water Works Association, Can Do, Woodard & Curran, and Interra. And I'd like for you to do me a favor, please, if you work for or with any of these sponsors, Please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note or word of thanks can go. And as long as you're letting sponsors know that you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Castbox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on? It would be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. Before we head on to that interview with Jeff, let's get to our Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale. So take it away. Well, Reese, welcome to another Bluefield on Tap. How you doing?
2: Good, Dave. How about yourself?
0: I am doing great. It's the end of July, uh, heading into August, and the Mariners are over five hundred. So it, life is good. It's uh, it's been twenty years since we've been in the playoffs, and uh, like I, I say, we. Uh, like I'm part of the team, but uh, it's 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 good to have something to look forward to in the last latter half of the summer. How about you?
2: Yeah, it's uh that things are good. I I mean speaking of baseball, I went to a game the other night. There uh Red Sox were playing the Blue Jays. It's just good to go to one, it's good to go to the park, right? Yeah. To watch a game, which I didn't get to do last year. So that's always fun. But I think uh for here everybody's excited because it's completely unexpected. The Red Sox <laughs> really weren't supposed to be that, that good. In fact, I think on one of the uh water values podcast i guess it must have been april one comment i made is uh ah, you know it's opening day they're not going to be any good <laughs> here we are in first place so hey it's exciting
0: yeah i, I was wrong on my prediction as well because i you know usually the uh the, the mariners out of the running by uh by may if not april so you know it's uh things are looking up uh well let that's enough small talk here let's talk a little water uh we took a We took a break for july now what what's on your radar uh in the water sector for uh this upcoming month here
2: Well, I will say to start with it's been crazy something is in the water from a bluefield research perspective i'm and I say this in all honesty i don't think we've ever been busier um when it comes to just Consulting engagements, but also just a lot happening, whether it be infrastructure uh, infrastructure week, if you will. We've talked about that in the past. But for me, I think what's interesting, I came across a report the other day by the Brookings Institute. Uh, this guy, William William Frey, uh, put out a report. America's largest cities show sharpest drop, population drops. And I look at that from a water perspective because we've recently, we obviously are forecasting infrastructure investment. Over time, and everybody's thinking when you first look at it, you think, "Oh, well, COVID really sort of cut into population population growth in the largest cities in the U.S. or just urban populations." And there was flight to you know places like Maine or you know uh, rural countryside outside of the larger cities in the in the middle of the U.S. But the reality of it is that's been happening for some time, and actually the growth rates have been. Steadily declining over the past three to five years, reversing sort of a urban renewal trend that we saw from two thousand and ten to two thousand and fifteen
0: yeah so what 's that mean for the water sector? Well, I think what
2: is interesting the way I look at it is it 's going to start putting a lot of pressure on the suburban water systems they 're typically smaller typically they don 't have they 're somewhat less sophisticated um, so in a way, it's an opportunity for a number of different way, you know, reasons. One, it, there could be digital opportunities. And I know of a couple of companies or vendors that are targeting those smaller systems, um, one, to just better understand what's happening. But they're also going to have to be more efficient you know, in their capital investments. And that could be driven through things like reuse or other, uh, other wastewater treatment methods that don't require as much capital investment. Other side of that is what's happening in the big cities, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they're going to, there's a, there's, they're going to be um, sort of like customer bases may decline. And as we know, planning cycles for large water systems are not short. They plan way out in advance. So are they sort of, uh, is there going to be a lagging effect that we're going to see?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Are you, uh, are opportunities for kind of consolidation or regionalization uh, going to be present with, with this, you know, so that, so that you kind of balance out the gains in the suburbans by the losses in the, in the urban centers?
2: Well, I think there may be an opportunity for that. I mean, we're already seeing that. You and I've talked a number of times about just privatization. Um, and so with stress comes opportunities for, you know, investor-owned utilities uh, to step in uh, and roll up assets or utilities but then there's also regionalization to your point you know is there a way to be more efficient not only just consolidating water supply water treatment and running it through one pipe you know organizations like um ej water you know in illinois there they've been focused a lot on that uh over the past couple of years and so you know is that going to pick that may pick up um but like any of this we're we're talking with about a battleship group not uh it doesn't change that fast
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, from a revenue perspective, the urban centers, to the extent they sell water to those suburban utilities, they actually may come out ahead, even though they're losing customers because they, they could get, uh, a, a, you know, kind of a surcharge bump from the, from the increase in wholesale sales.
2: Yeah. And I think it's interesting in our last, um, we did, a operating expenditure analysis of the U S market, Probably now it's July, so three, four months ago. It's really interesting. We did a lot of work on looking at consecutive systems, those systems that were actually purchasing uh, water from bulk water suppliers. And the prevalence of that is greater, obviously, in places where you are in the middle, you know, sort of the breadbasket of the US. There's a lot more activity now. Yeah, so the rates may rise. There may be an opportunity for that. I, I agree with you. And uh, so it's a, it's, I wouldn't say, um, this trend has been happening. My, I guess my takeaway from all of this is this has been population trend and the shift has been happening, um, where growth rates have been declining for several years. COVID has accelerated that. The question is, will COVID, you know, keep it down? Will people really stay out there at this point? Um, it's just been interesting given that from 2010 to 2015, there was this uptick and you could almost feel it. I'm in Boston. You could feel it happening, but. In Boston, I didn't even realize it's been really the growth rate has been declining, and then we went into negative growth during the 1920 years.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really interesting because not not only is the 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 urban centers losing population to the suburbs, but the more rural communities are losing population as well. There was a uh, an article I saw that said 55 percent of U.S. counties actually lost population uh, over the last 10 years. And
2: yeah. So it's like this convergence in the middle, right? Between the rural areas and the cities. And, um, I'm not going to lie. I've never lived in the suburbs, so I don't know what it's like, (laughs) um, (laughs) but I'm sure it's really nice. It sounds nice right now being in the city with a lot less people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Hey Reese, always great to hear your insights. Uh, thanks so much for your time and we'll catch up with you soon, man.
2: All right, Dave, take it easy. Good luck with the Mariners. Hang on.
0: Yeah. Amen. Same with your Red Sox. We'll see you. Take care. Bye. As always, great information from Bluefield Research and Reese Tisdale. Now it's time for our feature guest, Jeff Keitlinger. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Jeff, welcome back to the Water Values Podcast. So great to have you on. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine, Dave. Thanks, uh,
0: Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's it's terrific. I know uh you are coming up on the end of your tenure as the general manager for the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. Uh I as a as an exit interview, I'm just very curious uh you still have a lot of gas in the tank left it would seem. Why choose to retire now?
1: Well, it, it's a decision I gave a lot of thought to, Dave, and uh there were a couple of things I thought. One is I am the longest tenured GM in Mets history. I've been GM for 15 years now, and and that seems a good long run. And sometimes you know you need some fresh blood to take a fresh look at things. And so I thought that might be good and invigorating for the agency. I also wanted to leave on my terms, and in a political job where you serve at the will of a board of directors. Uh, I always felt it's good to leave on your terms as opposed to wait until they decide that it's time for a change. (laughs) And then finally, I wanted to make sure that we weren't in the middle of things, that that there would be good timing. And there are some major decisions coming on the Colorado River that have to be done by 2026. There are some major decisions that have to be done in the Bay Delta on a conveyance program there. But that environmental review won't be done until probably about 2024. And then Metropolitan will have to make a major decision on a major, on a very large infrastructure project, regional recycled program uh, that we're in the middle of environmental review on. And that decision will be about 2023. And so I thought, I sh- I w- I sh- if I'm going to leave, I didn't want to leave in the middle of those major decisions. I wanted to kind of let someone get in and really get a feel for those Projects and be in, be on board some, for some time. So I thought the timing was right now. A good round number, fifteen years. We're sort of between big major decisions, and that'll allow someone to get their feet wet and be ready for it. So I thought the timing made
0: sense to me. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, and I think that really speaks to your leadership uh, in terms of making sure that you're leaving the agency in a good position and making sure that your your you know your successor. Uh, is is well suited, or at least has has an opportunity to get some experience before those uh, big decisions come on the on the horizon. You've done a number of exit interviews; all of them are have been fantastic. I've I've read through them, uh, and so I, I'd like to keep this a little higher level than some of your your other exit interviews. And I just uh, I want to focus on that leadership issue I just mentioned. So, in your mind, what makes a good water leader? That's a good question,
1: David. I, I've, I've thought about that a lot. And I, I think because water is about trends and, and you know, you're looking at hydrological cycles and the projects we tend to big are, are large and, and expensive and time consuming, I think what makes a good leader is really someone who can really think ahead. And that's what I think is necessary in the water business. Some things, you know, you can, you know, are sort of quarter to quarter, year to year. I think in our business, you have to really be thinking a decade uh, ahead or more, maybe twenty-five years ahead. And so, I think really playing the long game, not worried about a short-term win for in the political uh, arena, but really thinking about what do we need to do for the next generation, and really preparing and thinking about that. And it's really hard in today's political world to do that, where people are really thinking about the next election—a two- or four-year cycle—and our business is we have to be thinking a ten- and twenty-year cycle ahead. And so that—that that ability to live in today's short-term world and strategize way into the future—that's uh, what is needed to be, in my mind, a good water leader.
0: Yeah, strategic force, strategic <laughs> foresight seems to me to be a uh, a valuable asset for any water leader. Uh, where do you see the gaps in water leadership, uh, that we're, we're currently experiencing and, and any ideas on how to fill those gaps?
1: Well, I, I think in you know, one of the more exciting things I've seen, uh, in my tenure as GM here is watching, uh, that, that whole new generation, the millennials and, and X's and Y's starting to come into the workforce and, I, I've been pretty excited by it. Uh, I've been particularly gratified uh, to see women, um, a lot of women moving into the water world. And so I see those gaps as being filled as we've, you know, when when I got into the water arena and just even as early, you know, four or five years ago, you'd see general managers on a panel. And basically you saw a lot of people that would look like me. You saw a lot of uh older white gentlemen with usually with white hair or no hair. And, and what's really, I think, promising is to see the number of women coming up. You know, we, we just had the, the last administration had the first ever woman commissioner and, and, uh, Brenda Berman. I see the high appointees now on water and the, um, Biden administration, Tanya Trujillo and, um, Camille Touton, And that, I think, I think the gap's are being filled in water leadership by that next generation of women joining the ranks. And I, I'm, I'm, and I've seen it at Metropolitan um, in the, you know, when I became GM here, we had very few young women uh, in engineering and, and the, some of the hard science uh, water quality at in our fields. And now it's it, our recruits are 50, 50 women in those fields. And so I I'm personally kind of excited by that. And I think, there are gaps, but I think they are being filled, and I and I think that's a really promising thing for water and uh, infrastructure business.
0: Terrific! That's that's a great great response. Uh, you you're a lawyer, and I I read in one of your exit interviews, you talked about how being a lawyer shaped being a GM. I'm just curious, what do you do? You have a perspective on the on you know the best training for a uh, a water leader or a general manager for a major utility. Any any thoughts on that? Is it lawyers or is it engineers? What what do you what, what's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I, I in the, when I first got in the business, most of your general managers were engineers. That was the traditional path to leadership because I think the challenges had been in the past, and uh, certainly the last generation were you know building infrastructure, and I think the challenges of this generation is how to find political will and the political ability to get things built and the financing to get them built. And so what I've seen as the challenges have evolved to more illegal permitting political and financial uh, challenges, I've seen more uh, CFOs and and more lawyers become GMs. And and you're you're seeing that and that's become more and more common. I, I still think what we talked about earlier, the key thing is to have that strategic, uh, long vision, and but you really do need to have the ability to understand what is possible in our legal political world that we have today, and how financially can you arrange the funding and financing to build them over generation. Those are two key things uh, that you that GMs are always keeping in mind, and so I, I do think law and economics make good training for GM, along with of course the engineering.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. How- in terms of uh, you were probably one of the the first lawyers to become a gm or at least you were in the initial wave of lawyers who became a gm did what advice did you get when you were ascending to the gm position and did you heed it
1: uh so interestingly uh, the advice i got were, were was kind of twofold um, you know really avoid raising rates and and uh, and in California, stay away from the California Bay Delta and the conveyance issues. And I thought about both of the, those pieces of advice and looked at them and decided to ignore them um, <laughs> because I realized that where I could, you could see the shift just starting when I became GM, uh, we were, when I became GM, most of our capital programs were, were for expansion. And we didn't have to spend a lot of money on repair and replacement. But our our infrastructure was just starting to move into that aging category. Uh, our Colorado River aqueduct was built in the 2030s and 40s. Our state water project was built in the 2030s t- uh, and 40s. And our state water project was built in the 1960s. And so they were starting to g- go into that 40 to 75-year-old and we were having to spend a lot more money on repair and replacement. So if you looked at MET's finances over the generations, we were able to kind of go through a boom and bust period almost, where we would raise rates for a decade, build a big tranche of infrastructure, and then go 10, 15 years without raising rates again while we paid that off. And then we'd do it again as we expanded the system for the growing population. But when you have to get into that repair and replacement, you have to get into a mode of you're raising rates every single year because those costs don't go away. That's just sort of like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. As soon as you get to one end, you start over and you start repainting it on back to, and you, just, you can never stop and you have to fund that. And that was a mindset that I had to get my board wrapped around that we're, we're not going to do like we did in the past, where we would raise our rates aggressively for four or five years and then take a decade off. We're going to raise our rates every single year. And you have to go back to your home agencies and the public and help sell that. And we've done that every year at BGM. GM. We've never taken a year off of raising rates. And that's put us in very solid, sound financial shape. And we're now paying uh, most of our annual maintenance costs with cash instead of bonds. And that, that keeps us well-suited for the future as we need to expand the system. Uh, The other piece of advice: Don't touch the Bay Delta, and the and because it was sort of a third rail of California politics, it's also something that has to be done. California is going to have to tackle this issue one way or another. It's politically contentious. It's extremely divisive. But I thought the smart approach was to go ahead and just be very upfront with uh, our board and the public that. We're going to have to do this somehow. I understand it's difficult and it's very unpopular, but we're going to have to do it. And so for the whole 15 years I've been here, I've been saying we have to do it. The last three governors in California have agreed that we have to do it, but we still haven't found the political will to actually do it. But we're working on it. And uh, and I always felt that we have to be upfront about that issue.
0: Yeah, I'm, I am not advising you, <laughs> but it sure seems like one of the things that you have gotten metropolitan to do, uh, in terms of raising rates every year, that's one of the things that I advise my clients. It's a lot easier to raise rates regularly in, in small increments than it is to go and bite off that big chunk. Uh, cause that brings the objectors out and say that we can conserve our way out of it, or we can do X, Y, and Z and, and you don't have to raise the rates on me. But I, I think that's a very wise, wise, uh, decision you made back then. Um, I, uh, how, over the last 15 years how has the the gm position changed uh since when you you took over you have you noticed um, anything
1: sure uh a couple of things i think uh that are interesting and some bode well and some are 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 problematic uh one of one of the things that's changed is is people move around you know quicker and, and things are moving quicker so i you know just we all know that uh, everyone knows that it used to be you know you'd write a letter and then then it became you'd send um, a fax, and and then now of course we just expect emails to be answered every single you know within a matter of hours and so everything has speeded up and so com- communications has become a very interesting matter you know i have a large board of directors We would send them a monthly board package and and kind of we were in a in a position where we'd kind of communicate with them, but really through monthly board meetings. But now with so much information moving around on the Internet, you know, the board expects information to be delivered to them quickly, too, so that we really have to change how we communicate with the public, how we communicate with the board. How do we be kind of transparent, but also quicker? And people expect their information Almost instantaneously, not sort of once a month, and so that was we had to really kind of change how we kind of deliver information to the public, to the board, and how we and how we speed up. And another issue that has happened is when I became GM, the average tenure of my board members were uh, eight, the average was eighteen years. So you would, you had very senior board members who'd been board members for a long time. They didn't need a lot of education on. Background of the agency. That I don't know if it's term limits or which doesn't really apply to my board. But if but if it's just a society that has term limits in mind, the average tenure on my board now is about three years. And so while you're uh, bringing forward complex decision materials, you also are are trying to constantly educate uh, at the same time. And so. Those are some of the changes I, I've seen. Just information has moved up. People don't tend to stay in the areas in their areas as long as they used to, and they tend to move around, which has created a challenge in getting that expertise and knowledge up to a, the same working level across the board.
0: That's a really interesting oh, juxtaposition, uh, where you're dealing with instantaneous information and constant education of board members, but yet one of the the big issues that you've, you, you think is important. And I, I agree with you is that strategic foresight. How, what are the challenges to, to, to that angle of if you're, if you're needing to make these really well thought out decisions, but you need to do it on a quick time frame with board members that have needed a lot of education. Do you have, how do you, how are you able to accomplish that? That seems like a very, that's like a Herculean task.
1: It, it It is a very hard task, and it is something that I talk a lot to my staff about, how we we have to be able to explain things in a very clear um, manner. And, and we have to make sure that we are not just sort of starting at an end point and assuming that there's a big background of knowledge. But, of course, we can't just take forever and just treat everything like, okay, we're going to treat this like a one-on-one class and take you from soup to nuts here. So. It really is a matter of creating clear documents without overwhelming people with too much information. Trying to make sure everything is in plain English and not and not the usual water acronyms of environmental law mixed with um, water speak and you know and CFS and acre feet and gallons per minute and we're, we we want to make sure we're communicating in a common language that that can also serve for the public as well as for our board. And so that takes a lot of practice and training and of our staff as well as um, working with the board to make sure they have the information that they need so they can make sound decisions. Uh, But technology is also, while it's a challenge, is also a great help on this. Uh, You know, we can make things, you know, clearer. We we can really bring graphics to the fore. You know, you can really beef up your website and, and push information out there. You can use video and other types of tools to really... Demonstrate to people so they can see things and visualize things better. So, it really, it takes a lot of staff thinking creative, creatively about how to use technology, not just as a challenge to overcome, but as a way to better educate and use these tools. And you know, I, I like to think we're pretty successful at it, but it is a
0: constant challenge. Yeah, yeah. What, what's been your biggest surprise uh, since since taking over as GM? Whether it's whether it's dealing with other states or whether it's dealing with Uh, intra-California agencies and and municipalities?
1: One of the biggest surprises I've seen, uh, and I I think it's a a worrisome challenge for all of us, is uh, that water used to be pretty common ground. uh, And the differences were sometimes you had agricultural and urban um, would be at odds with each other. Sometimes we'd be at odds with environmental groups. But by and large, everyone kind of understood this is a basic necessity, and and we have to solve the problems. And then it was more a matter of how you pay for it and how you share it. But there there was a pretty common understanding that this did need to be solved, and it was fairly nonpartisan. You know how how to who had to pay for it was kind of and and how to share the resource was the biggest debate. And and I've seen it in recent times become more partisan and become sort of red and blue and, and become more divisive. And I, I, maybe that's just something that reflects the rest of the country and how the, the rest of the country and how everything now seems to be more and more divisive. But I have been surprised to see that happen in water and how different states will have uh, you know, different views on it, sort of depending on the politics. And that, that's something that's an evolution. That's something we, that is going to take some thinking about. And how do we manage them?
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, to that end, is, is kind of the, the, you know, Western water, in, is it in need of a new governance regime? Or do you, what, what, what's your thoughts on how, how the governance regime is working?
1: I, by and large, think we've been able to make it work. And, you know, I, you watched Australia when they kind of hit the wall, really took a look, hard look and, and made adjustments to their governance regime. But that was extremely painful and you know very, very difficult. And you know, basically took making water a national election issue. And so I would hope that we managed to not to keep ahead of the curve and not get to that point where we have to make a massive regime overhaul. And by and large, I think the water managers in the West have been able to do that. We've in on the Colorado River. You know, we were all suing each other through the 80s and 90s, but once the drought really started to take hold in 2000, and we've been in a 20-year drought, the the fighting slowed down, and people started saying we have to find ways to cooperate and make this work. And the last 20 years on the Colorado River have been marked by agreement after agreement on how to share, uh, how to share pain, how to how to short, how to manage shortages, how to fund projects and uh, how to work with mexico and you're seeing people just understand that we can make the governance work uh if we can work together cooperatively and you're you've seen that on the colorado and you've seen it other places in the west and so i am i believe we can make the current governance regimes work as long as people understand that we ha- you know we failure is not an option and we don't we should not be ending up in court and not solving the issues
0: right right yeah. well, um Great perspective on that. What, what is your, what is your proudest accomplishment since uh, taking over as GM?
1: There's a number of things. I, I, I I just mentioned the Colorado river and the series of cooperative agreements we entered into on that. I'm very proud of uh, the role that metropolitan played in those, uh, the couple of large infrastructure projects we had to do, uh, particularly one that was stalled and extremely challenging. And there was a lot of pressure to just give up on the project and really held our feet. But I really pushed hard that we can finish this. I know we can finish this and we need to finish it. And that was an inland feeder, $1.1 billion pipeline that was enmeshed in litigation and basically stalled out. And we, we pushed through and got it done. And then, you know, a couple of things, though, that I also was really proud of is that that are kind of small things that people probably don't really notice. When I became GM, the average age at Metropolitan was upper 50s. And we had zero employees in their 20s and only a handful in their 30s. And I thought, what a skewed demographic. I know the baby boom's aging, but this looks very skewed. And I kind of had a conversation with my management team and with HR. And the preference on management team was when a senior person retired, that we would go to our member agencies and hire an experienced person. And so we're replacing experienced people with experienced people. So nobody would miss a beat and we'd stay on it. But we were basically staying at the same age with that strategy. And I said, "I, I wanted to change that. I think diversity means Uh, a lot of things and we were going to get a more diverse workforce if we hire the younger people who are more diverse just by demographics and so i said i wanted to hire folks out of college again and start training them in metropolitan's way and that means a lot of work for hr because it meant um, every time a senior person retired and if you're hiring an entry-level person you also had to manage all the promotions within. So it basically meant they had to do three to four recruitments for every person that retired as you move people up the chain. But I thought it created more opportunity. It made us more diverse. It made us younger. It brought more women into the workforce. And now we have uh, over 100 or so employees in their 20s and three or 400 in their 30s. And, and they're much more diverse for the first time in our history. We're over a 50% minority. And, and I think it's really revitalized the agency. So it's one of those subtle things that I'm really proud of to leave here. Cause I think it's really worked well in the situation and it situates metropolitan to be sustainable for the future to have that young workforce. And everyone told me in the beginning, you know, boy, you hire these young millennials, they're going to leave in three years because they just want to travel and do things. And I said, well, if they leave, they leave, we'll see. Uh, they all, they're all here. They like the job. <laughs> they're, they're invigorated. They're excited. They actually like being here. That's worked out. I think it's good for them and it's good for the agency.
0: Awesome. awesome. We've all had experiences in our life where it hasn't worked out yeah. like we thought it would or, or it should. Uh, do you have any of those? What, what, what situations you do you wish would have worked out differently? And, and what, well, and, what'd you, and what'd you learn from that? I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I sure
1: we've all had those. At, among the things, one of the things I thought that um, did not work out the way I wish it had, you know, and I was talking about that earlier, was uh, how to work with the Bay Delta and how to kind of get that project needed that would help uh, protect California into the future. And uh, I, my my strategy had been to really work with the rest of the water community get consensus on what we needed to build, build that through working with the administration and the political leadership. And that was, by and large, successful. But we never were able to really engage the public and local electeds into the need that this had to be done. And part of it was just it was was so hard to educate people on a project that's going to take 15 to 20 years to build that's going to be needed for the not for this generation. It really wasn't going to provide any benefits until the next generation. And we could not get and capture a public, the captivate the public to support that. It just was too far off in the future. And, and so it's been stalled out, uh, frankly, through three governors now, primarily because it doesn't have that deep grassroots support. And so I learned, I think, that you really need to start. You, you can't neglect that. You really have to educate the public. And even if it's a complex, tough subject, you, you have to bring them along so that local electeds understand that their constituents are, are, are aware of this issue. And that's something that we could have spent um, more time and effort and energy in accomplishing that.
0: Yeah. yeah very good. Uh, well, your successor has been uh, appointed do you have, yes. do you have it's Adele Hoshkalil. So congratulations, Adele. Uh, uh, but what public words of advice do you have for Adele?
1: Well, Metropolitan is a very unique agency. Uh, we have, we cover portions or all of six counties in Southern California. It, so it doesn't really have a political boundary. You don't have to belong to Metropolitan people. Agencies and cities belong to Metropolitan because it's cost effective to band together because water infrastructure is hugely expensive. So we're a voluntary collective to do big things and to deliver water in a, in a ma- on a massive scale. And we deliver water to 19 million people. That's one in every two Californians. It's one in every 16 Americans. And so it's, we do a massive, huge job. So the, the two things I think that are really important to understand when you're running Metropolitan, one is you, we really need consensus internally. Because we're this voluntarily cooperative structure, you really have to work closely to build that consensus. Uh, we, we can't be divided within and be successful. So we need internally a high degree of consensus on what is our vision for the future, what we're going to collectively finance and build. And then secondly, I think, even though that's all internal, you have to look outward. Uh, Metropolitan, because of its size and scale, the decisions we make impact the rest of California. And if you impact California with the fifth largest economy in the world, you impact the rest of the country. And so we have to be mindful of where we fit in that role. And, you know, our responsibility goes just beyond our geographic footprint. Uh, the decisions we make ripple up and down the Central Valley to our entire agricultural economy, to how we manage water throughout the state and in the West on the Colorado River. So because of the size of our footprint, we have to be mindful about how we impact others and, and that we need to make sure we're not you know, harming others in pursuing our own interests because we're all in this together. And if, we, if, there's, if Las Vegas isn't thriving or the Central Valley isn't thriving, that ripples back to us. So we, we need to be mindful of our impact. Yeah.
0: yeah. Ter- terrific <laughs> Terrific. I think uh, that is very, um, very poignant what you indicated. And uh, that's, those are great words of advice and I, I hope Adele will take those to heart. Uh, well, well, Jeff, we're at the end of our time. Thank you so much for coming on again. You've been a terrific uh, friend of the podcast. Really appreciate uh, you sharing your insights over the years And thank you so much for the great service you've done at Metropolitan. You've been a true water leader, and we really appreciate uh, everything you've done uh, in the water space.
1: Thank you very much, David. And I've enjoyed working with you and Denton's and um, the the water podcast. And I I do think your water values podcast has has been fun to be on. And I I listen to other ones, and I've always been willing and happy to jump on because you you provide a good service to the water community. So thank you, David.
0: Well, thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, on to your next adventure, uh, whatever that may be, I wish you the best of luck and we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. All All right. Thanks, Jeff. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Well I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. He always provides such such thoughtful responses and every interview just turns out to be a real genuine and enjoyable conversation with him. So thank you so much for your time over the years Jeff and for this time specifically uh talking about uh water leadership your your tenure at uh Metropolitan it, it, just a just a fantastic conversation and I greatly appreciate it. Uh, And, and, you know, when you think about it, when you think on uh, and reflect back on Jeff's thoughts on water leadership and what's needed in the water sector, you know that Metropolitan is in good hands with Adele Haj Khalil as the new general manager. And to see what I mean on that, you can check out uh, the Water Values podcast episode number 142, which is my interview with Adele back when he was uh, with the city of Los Angeles Bureau of Streets. Uh, You'll you'll be blown away by Adele's uh, interview in that one, too. So I would love for you to let me know what you thought about this interview. Please check out the show notes page for this and the links on the episode. You can Google the Water Values podcast and just click on the first link that comes up. You can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can also email me at David.mGimsey at Dentons.com and you can sign up for the newsletter. Uh, Again, at that landing page, when you Google the Water Values Podcast, you'll show up at the, the, the landing page at Bluefield Research's site. Again, as most of you know, the Water Values Podcast and Bluefield are separate entities. We just have a kind of a joint marketing arrangement. Well, thank you again for tuning in, and a huge, huge, huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast include Xylem, Black & Veatch, the American Waterworks Association, Can Do, Woodard & Curran, and Interra. And this show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. So thank you so much. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.